1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 to 40, which says this. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet, or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the chance to learn from it, be encouraged by it, and strengthened by it. God, we're thankful even for passages that can be confusing, uh, Lord, that you speak to us of your grace and your mercy and your desire to bring honor to the name of Christ. And so, God, we pray that you would be with us now as we look at this scripture, that you would encourage our hearts and build us up for the work of the Lord that you have for us to do. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful to be in this place, so thankful to be able to worship you freely, to be able to honor your name as it ought to be honored, Lord, to lift you up. Lord, I pray that you would be lifted up in the preaching of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so as you know, uh, we've been going through basically the, the church service. Paul has been bringing some correctives to the way that the Corinthians are experiencing a church service. So through chapters, from chapter 11 all the way to chapter 14, that's what Paul's been hitting on. He first started out hitting on uh, women who weren't covering their heads in prayer, and though we don't know exactly what he's talking about there uh, in the particulars, we do know that the women that were doing that were bringing shame upon their husbands in some way. Culturally, they were bringing shame upon their husbands by doing this, uh, by not honoring uh, the, the, the uh, created order that God had set up that. And so they that brought shame. And, and next we saw that the Corinthians were actually having this class system develop within the celebration of the Lord's Supper, where the rich were celebrating in a lavish dinner and the poor were celebrating in a meager feast. And they were calling this the Lord's Supper. And Paul is saying, listen, the body of Christ is to portray itself as it is, which is unified under Jesus. You cannot have some with some lavish meal and saying that is the same meal as this, these in poverty. You ought to be an equal in unity, even in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. What they were celebrating, he says, is not the Lord's Supper. It is something very different. And, and so now in chapters 12 to 14, he's addressing this keystone issue for the Corinthians, which is their use and understanding of spiritual gifts and the use of tongues in particular. 
The Corinthians viewed the gift of tongues as the pinnacle of spiritual experience, and uh, they actually viewed the uninterpreted tongue, just the, the speaking of tongues in mass together as the, the best spiritual experience that they could have. And so if you didn't have speaking in tongues, you, you haven't become a spiritual one in their estimation of things. If you weren't speaking in the tongues of angels, then you didn't have it all together yet. You hadn't arrived as those who had. And so Paul now is confronting them throughout chapters 12 to 14 and saying, that is far from the case. All of these spiritual gifts have been given for the common good of the believers. They don't just include speaking in tongues. They also include acts of service. They also include prophecy. They also uh, include uh, gifts of helping and healing and, and uh, all these sorts of things, uh, miracles. And so Paul is saying there are a variety of gifts with which we are to honor and, and, uh, and build up the body of Christ, which are for the common good. And so uh, Paul also shows them that in the middle of this all, the key to the entirety of the use of spiritual gifts is that we love, that we show actively our love for one another in these gifts. These gifts are meant to declare our love to one another and to Christ. And so uh, Paul is saying that is the, the, the central issue here. You can have all these things and do all these miracles and have all these tongues and all this, but if you don't have love, you have nothing. And now in chapter 14, Paul has been going through and uh, giving two main correctives to the Corinthian use of tongues. And the first was uh, that in their use of uninterpreted tongues, there is an intelligibility issue. We talked about that, about that last week, that as they speak in tongues in the church service, it's great that they're speaking in tongues. He actually acknowledges that speaking in tongues is a good thing. You're communicating directly to the Father in the Spirit, like you are communing with the Father by speaking in tongues. But he says the purpose of gathering together is to build up the church, to edify the church. And just like if you were speaking a foreign language to a friend that didn't know that language, you can't communicate. And the purpose of coming together is that you communicate with each other and encourage each other, build each other up and strengthen each other. So he says there's an intelligibility issue with speaking in tongues without an interpretation. The Corinthians came together and had this uh, uh, ecstatic experience of all speaking in tongues but no one's edified because no one knows what's happening. No one knows what's being said. And the purpose of coming together is to clearly communicate some revelation or some truth or, or something that we need to be challenged by that we can take action on. Um, while you might be giving thanks good enough, as Paul says, in speaking in tongues, uh, it doesn't declare what we ought to do. It, I can't say amen to a tongue because I don't know what you're saying. Only you, your spirit and God know what you're saying. And so it's this very direct connection. Uh, so Paul says there's an intelligibility issue. And so if you're going to use speaking in tongues, if you're going to speak in tongues in church, that has to be followed by an interpretation in some way. So Paul first hits on this issue that, uh, listen, speaking in tongues and actually spiritual gifts as a whole ought to be used with intelligibility. Our communication of the gospel and of of the truths that we're, that we're dealing with have to be done so in an intelligible fashion. And so today he's going to tell us that um, a second piece of this is that in all that we do in the church service, it ought to be done with order. That there ought to be some order to it, and he'll get directly at tongues in a, in, a, in a minute with that. So with regard to order, Paul calls the Corinthians to two things that I see in this in this passage. And those two things are First, to be available, and second, to be quiet. (laughs) 
And he's actually going to tell three groups of people when they ought to be quiet. He says, keep silent uh, on, a couple, on a few different occasions. And I believe these are specific correctives to the Corinthian church in abuses they were making uh, in the service. So, uh, so first he calls them to be available. Uh, verse, he, right when he starts out here, he says, um, where am I? What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up. Again, this is like another gift list that we've seen here. He's, he's done, I don't know how many, but I feel like it's been like four or five different gift lists that he's done, and each one has been slightly different. Uh, in this one, he says, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation. Uh, those are things we haven't really heard specifically before. And then again, a tongue and interpretation is uh, also advanced. So we know that, that Paul is continuing to address this issue. In every gift list, we've seen a tongue and interpretation listed, uh, but the rest of the gifts that are associated with it have been different each time. So we can see throughout Paul's argument that the, the key issue he is getting at with the Corinthians is the tongues and interpretations. In every sort of variety of lists that he's given, those two have been throughout, uh, been a thread throughout the, the whole argument. And so uh, Paul says that we ought to be available. He says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Um, see, the problem in Corinth is that, uh, is this, that too many people were speaking to too few people, okay? This group of people is coming together and all speaking in tongues and this, this ecstatic experience is coming from a multitude of individuals. But what's happening? No one is actually being built up. No one is actually receiving from that. All the receiving is that there's some spiritual experience happening. They're actually not receiving any edification or any instruction or any building up. And so the problem in Corinth is that too many speak to too few individuals. Uh, and that's, that's a problem that some churches do face even, even now uh, in, in, our, in our time. But I would say the predominant issue that our churches in America face is different. It's actually like the reverse of the Corinthian problem, but it's just as much addressed in this passage. Uh, see, this passage says, again, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. That means all of us come with something to church. We are all part of one body, and we come to celebrate together as one body. And we each bring something to the table in doing that. We are one body in that we function together. And so the problem today is this, that too few people speak to too many individuals. It's the reverse of the Corinthian problem. The Corinthian problem is too many people speak to too few individuals. The problem today is that too few people speak to too many individuals. Uh, too often in our churches, the, the role that I'm taking right now, this sermonic uh, you know, monologue that, that I'm giving you, is the central thing in, in church. And the fact is that, that that can't be the only way that we engage one another in church. Because Paul plainly shows us that each of us are equipped with a hymn, an instruction, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. We each come with something to give to the body of Christ. And so you know, honestly, I struggle with, even through this week, trying to determine how to, what does that look like, you know, if everyone comes with something that we share. And to me, the closest thing that, that we try to do in that at Restoration Church is during our time of thanksgiving and prayer. 
we set aside time each week uh, to thank God for things he's doing, uh, to share things that the Lord might be teaching each of us this week, uh, and to pray for each other, to pray, uh, to share a prayer request, and then for someone to pray for you. And so to me, that's one way that we're trying to get it. Is it perfect? I'm not really sure. Um, It actually led me to struggle with is a sermon important at all? <laughs> you know, I really actually struggled with that a little bit this week. Like, shouldn't we just all just like come together like the Quakers and like sit around and like just share a little thing that, you know, that's what they do. They like, it's like a circle and then wherever the spirit leads, they just share. And so anyway, that's sort of, that's, that's a, that's a thing. So I thought, is it, maybe it's like that. Um, but I really don't think that's the case. I think there's a, a predominant and clear picture in the scriptures of uh, the apostles teaching being shared by individuals who have given thoughtful study to the word and are sharing that on a regular basis. So don't get scared. I'm not taking away the sermon <laughs> um, anytime soon. Or maybe I should say that to myself. Don't get scared. You don't have to. Okay. Um, so, but the problem that we do need to face, we have to grapple with this as an American church, as, an, as a church ourselves, is that too few speak to too many. And that issue is on a leadership issue, but it's also on a, on a church issue uh, that we all seek ways that we can come ready to share a hymn, an instruction, a, a revelation, uh, or, or maybe it's just the service that we're bringing. All these gifts that we talk about, these things need to be brought. Uh, and, and so there's a mindset both from leadership in church that uh, we are leading this experience for people and from church members that we are just coming to participate in this experience that's being provided. And that's not really the picture that we ought to have with church. The picture we ought to have with church is that uh, we are all equal in coming to the Lord, and we are all bringing something to the table in that. Um, You know, for instance, today, right, Sandy brought us delicious donuts, right? And that is something that you brought to us and you consistently bring to us, which is a huge blessing to us. And Sam brings us a song, you know, he brings us singing and uh, Christy takes care of these kids that are beautiful and full of energy. Uh, and I prepare this sermon and, and hopefully as people come and are added, they also realize that we're doing this together. We're going together in this. This is something that we're journeying on as a group, not as a uh, professional staff sort of dictating how this ought to operate and controlling it in some way as some experience that should be in a certain type of fashion. And so I think that's the thing we have to grapple with. And that comes with uh, the idea of, uh, or, or, or wrapping our minds around what the true idea of the priesthood of the believer is. First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9 Uh, is a a great text for this. Peter says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. One of the things that Peter says there is that you are a royal priesthood. And throughout Paul's letters, actually, we are declared as not just like leaders in the church in this way, but everybody that's addressed as saints, that we are declared as saints. So many times we think of a saint as this set-apart individual uh, that has earned some spiritual accolades, but actually, as Paul declares it, saints are those who have trusted in Jesus. You are the saints. You are set apart. You are a royal priesthood. And so our real conception of uh, vocational ministry and, uh, quote, lay, lay ministry or lay lay participation has to be changed. What the true understanding of this ought to be is that we are all priests, right? We all worship God in coming together. And uh, in, in the Old Testament, there was this, this uh, perspective of there are the priests that served at the temple, 
And there's another group of people that was called the temple servants. And the job of the temple servants was simply to provide for the priests so that they could adequately worship the God. Worship God. And so really the perspective of church leadership, uh, me and, and Sam and, and anyone else that would come and join as a staff member, is that we are servants. We are temple servants. We are serving the priests as they worship in the temple. We've even learned in 1 Corinthians that uh, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So where is the temple that's being, that where the Lord is being worshipped? It's, it's my body. That's where I'm worshiping the Lord as a holy priest set apart for the Lord. And so really the role of uh, vocational leaders or bivocational leaders in the church is to be a temple servant to the priesthood, to serve them so that they're ready to worship God in all of their lives and all of their being and give all they are to him. And so our, our understanding of that, both from a leadership perspective and a congregational perspective, has to be shifted so that we see that we are priests, we are saints, and we ought to be the ones bringing forth uh, this worship unto the Lord. Um, so Paul here goes on and says that instead of, instead of forbidding, uh, forbidding particular gifts or desiring particular gifts, Paul says, desire the spiritual gifts. In verse 39 uh, to 40, he, he concludes his uh, time by saying this. He says, so brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Um, Paul's been using throughout prophecy as a uh, contrast to tongues. And so I really think he is actually saying not only prophecy, but also all the other spiritual gifts. Desire these greater gifts, he said at, at particular times. Desire prophecy. Desire spiritual gifts that you can bring, but do not forbid speaking in tongues. Um, Paul says that we, that we each ought to desire something that can build up and strengthen the body of Christ. So what he's calling them to is this, that we be available be available to bring a fitting and orderly uh, worship experience unto the Lord. Verse, uh, verse 40, he says, All things should be done decently and in order. Paul's first call to the Corinthians is, listen, be available, not just in this ecstatic event of speaking in tongues, but be available to equip the body of Christ with uh, with encouragement and, and instruction and revelation in whatever the Lord brings that to you through. So first he calls them to be available. Second, part of Paul's instruction uh, is that things be done in order uh, for the Corinthians is to, is to be quiet, actually. Uh, he goes through three things. He goes through tongues, prophecy, and uh, wives that are not giving honor to their husbands in their speech. Uh, so, during, during these uh, verses 27 to 35, he, he addresses these three things. Uh, speaking in tongues, which we know that they have been messing up real bad. Uh, prophecy, which they are really, uh, I don't know if they're forbidding, but they're neglecting for sure. Uh, and then some wives, definitely wives but from the interpretation of this, uh, who are not giving the proper honor and respect to their husbands in the way they interact in the service. Uh, so let's look at these things. First, tongues. Um, starting in verse 27, uh, he says this, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each, one, uh, each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Paul's uh, plain instruction for order in the church with regard to the use of speaking in tongues is this, 
only two or three. He actually limits it at, at the most to three. And again, I think some of these correctives to the church or to the church in Corinth are probably specific to their case, uh, but I think it's a rule that, that can definitely be applied with some uh, as a good principle. Um, Paul says only two or three. He says that because the Corinthians, in their experience, are just saying, okay, everybody speak in tongues. Let's have this ecstatic experience, and it goes on forever and ever, and no one actually gets built up. And so Paul says, listen, you guys are overemphasizing this gift. At the most, I want you to have two or three people do this. And if there's not an interpretation, then don't do it at all. Uh, Just keep it between yourself and God. Um, He says, uh, two or three, they ought to be in turn and with an interpretation. Is without interpretation, uh, you should keep them in private use. And I'm not exactly sure if he means that you ought to keep them at home and only do them like when you're at your own home, uh, or if he just means do them quietly uh, within the service to yourself. Uh, and I think, I think there's probably room for, you know, sort of feeling that out. Uh, the main principle here is that what you are doing in speaking in tongues is not a distraction to the rest of the service uh, and uh, a is not uh, uh, taking away from the building up and edifying of the church. And so, so I think there's room for, uh, for, you know, if I have a tongue that the Lord is wanting to speak through me and no one is there to interpret that, I, that I'm sitting in my chair and just continuing to have that intimacy with the Lord, uh, but not distracting others or like stirring them up to come join me in this. And so I think that's what he's talking about mainly. Um, but but th- that's the first group that he says to, hey, keep silent, <laughs> If there's not an interpreter, then you need to keep silent. Okay, you need to you need to keep silent from taking over uh, this this instruction. Second, he addresses prophecy, and in prophecy, he actually does something interesting. He uh, instead of limiting it to three, he actually says at least two or three. Uh, so starting in verse uh, thirty or uh, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, um, let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Uh, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. So here he's saying, uh, let two or three people prophesy. And then later he says, actually, all of you can prophesy to each other that you ought to be encouraged. And so he's saying, listen, prophecy is something that this is, this is given for the church to build us up and strengthen us. And as we learned last week, not only build up and strengthen the church, but also bring salvation to any unbeliever that comes into our midst. He says, if, if an unbeliever comes into your midst, then uh, what did it say last week? He says, um, an outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. He says, this is the power of prophecy, so don't, don't limit it, don't forbid speaking in tongues, don't forbid prophecy, actually desire prophecy for the church, because it is the thing that builds up and strengthens the church the most. And so he says, let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. So the directive here is that um, is is an interesting thing that uh, that there are prophets that the Lord is speaking to, and He acknowledges that we ought to have these prophecies shared in this time of worship, but He also says that we ought to weigh what is said, and it's it reminds you back of First uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen where He says, "For now we prophesy in part, and we know in part." There's actually like a brokenness in our prophecy. So like 
as I prophesy, there might be something that's coming out that's a little bit of me and something that's coming out that's really of God. And so, uh, so as we're prophesying, we ought to weigh what is said and say, does this line up with scripture or not? Is this something that I should receive or is this something that I should reject? Almost like, you know, take prophecy, take some of these prophecies with a grain of salt. Is he, is he truly, is this truly for us or is this truly not? Weigh what is said. Don't just take it as, as a complete gospel. Gospel is the word, okay? Prophecy is God speaking to us for a specific circumstance and giving us encouragement and strength. And so uh, with prophecy, um, weigh what is said. And I think there's also a directive here, and he's saying again to this group, and in, in the way they ought to be quiet is that they not, ought not ramble on. That is, there's lots of people that, that actually have an opportunity to, pro- to prophesy, to share this. And so he says, if someone is, you know, if you're sharing your prophecy and someone's ready to share their prophecy, you know, be concise, wrap it up, say what needs to be said and, and move on and let this other person share what the Lord has put on their heart. Uh, and so they actually had a mechanism for which that would happen. And so the prophet would be here sort of speaking. And then the next person that the Lord spoke to would actually stand up and as, as this person saw that one stand up, this one would sit down and that one would begin speaking. And so it was this sort of this just uh, interaction with each other as they transitioned through, uh, through the process. And so Paul's saying uh, at least two or three uh, prophesy, but all of you can prophesy so that we can, be, so that we can learn and be encouraged by one another. Uh, and then he says the spirit of the prophets are subject to prophets. In the center of this section, he gives a, this, uh, this principle to us before he moves on to speaking about uh, women, uh, wives being silent in church. He says, For God is a God not of confusion, but of peace in all the churches of the saints. Now, in your Bible, you might see that uh, it says, For God is not a, confu- not a God of confusion, but of peace, period. And then it says, As in all the churches of the saints, uh, the women should keep silent in the church. That uh, separation is a very modern separation of the paragraph. And so if you look back at the text and, and do your study on the text, actually, uh, the most likely connection is that uh, it says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace in all the churches of the saints, period. And then moves on to the next statement, uh, the wives should keep silent in the churches. The, one of the reasons that we know that is verses 34 to 35 have two positions in our manuscripts, Okay. So there's, you guys know, there's like millions or th- thousands upon thousands of different manuscripts that we have of the original text. Uh, well, verses 34 and 35 of this text, in some of the newer versions or newer texts, uh, verse 34 and 35 are where they are in our passage right here, verse 34 and 35. In the older texts, uh, verses 34 and 35 are actually after verse 40, Okay. So there's like a little bit of variation with that. And the break is at verse 34. Uh, so part of the reason we know that the second half of verse 33 goes with the first half of verse 33 uh, is that uh, the 34 and 35 are separated in other, in different manuscripts. Okay. So that's a little bit of like very technical <laughs> Greek deal, but that's what's happening here. Uh, we do think it's original, so we, you know, we do affirm what is said here, and, and now I'm going to deal with what is said here. Uh, but, but that's sort of a, a, a clear thing that it's, it, the as in all churches actually goes with the statement before. Uh, so what he's saying there in the center of this uh, discourse, though, is that for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 
So the principle that we ought to apply in uh, ordering our service or ordering any time that we gather together as a body of believers is that God isn't a God of confusion. He's not here to confuse you or to trick you or to, uh, or to manipulate in any way. He's a God of peace. And so if there's any sort of hint of uh, manipulation or confusion or, or distrust or, or what have you, it needs to be addressed because that's not of God. God's not a God of confusion. Something confusing is happening. We've got to address it. Uh, whether that's from a, a leadership standpoint or from a congregational standpoint, as a body of Christ, we have the, uh, the, um, the, the need to address that, the, the, uh, the responsibility, that's the word I was fishing for, the responsibility to address that. Each of us hold that, bear that responsibility. Uh, as a leader, it's my, uh, de- my duty to ensure as little confusion as possible but as a body of believers, if there is confusion, we ought to speak up and, and share that and say, you know, what were you talking about with the Lord's Supper? Because that's not how I understood it, or you know, this is what I saw. We see that as a, uh, a thread throughout the church history. Even in, in the book of Acts, we saw that the Bereans were of noble character because they tested what Paul said to see if it was true. They tested it against the scriptures. And so the duty and responsibility uh, of this uh, of declaring that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace is upon us all to say, is this confusing or is it not? Let's make sure that we clear this up uh, so that we know what truth is and we can walk in it and act upon it. All right. Uh, and so having the proper order is a big piece of that. And so uh, this final directive that he gives to the Corinthians is this in verse 34 and 35. It says, the women, and I believe it should be interpreted the wives because of the context, the wives should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands, which is why I think it's talking to the wives, uh, at home, for it is shameful for a wife to speak in church. So let me say a couple things here. Um, First of all, we know that uh, that women are permitted to speak in church. We know that because Paul has already said that they pray and prophesy, and when they pray and prophesy, they ought to have their head covers or, or all this. <laughs> perfect timing. Yes, that was perfect. <laughs> see ya. Uh, um, we know this because we, we see that uh, women have been, uh, been both prophets in Judaism and prophets in the church, and that women have not been forbidden to speak uh, in church. We see prophets, female prophets in the Old Testament in Exodus 15, verses 20 to 21, says, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And again in Judges 4, 4, we see, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She is a prophetess. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 36 to 38, this is sort of a carryover from the Old Covenant, but it says this, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, 37, uh, and and then as a a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting, uh, with fasting and prayer night and day. The fact is, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, we see women as prophetesses throughout the Old Testament. 
We also see that women are not forbidden to speak in the church in the New Testament. Acts 21 verses 8 to 9 says this, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, uh, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 4 to 5, we see every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonored, uh, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So from the logic of it, from the mere logic of it, we see that even uh, in this case, while it's directly applying to wives, Paul has already said that wives can pray and prophesy. So it's not saying, the text is not saying that women should be silent at all times in the church, which is typically how people take it. Uh, That's not how it ought to be taught. It ought to be taught um, that wives in certain cases in the church ought not speak because of the dishonor that they bring upon their husbands. There are a couple of uh, possibilities for when this might happen in the church. Uh, One of them is directly in reference to uh, what was before the prophecy. In prophecy, we see these prophets speaking prophecy, and one of the things that the church is called to do is weigh these prophecies. And so one possibility that Paul is talking about here is that in the weighing of the prophecies, uh, the wives are not to speak in this weighing, whatever, it, whatever form it took, most likely with questions. A prophecy was shared, and then someone might actually have a question about the specific application of that prophecy, and the prophet would have to respond to that and clarify if necessary. And so Paul is saying that uh, it is dishonorable for the wife to speak really in a position of her husband in weighing this prophet. Uh, it also might be that there's a time of uh, of corporate sharing in some way in which the husband ought to be standing forth as a representative of his family. And if the, if the wife speaks, he is, she is dishonoring her husband in that way. And so um, we actually are not exactly sure what circumstance uh, called for this correction, but we do know that something the Corinthians were doing, the Corinthian wives were doing, was shameful toward their husbands. Their speech was shameful toward their husbands in some way. It might have even been uh, more drastic in that they were individually going to other men and speaking to them and asking them questions rather than speaking to their husbands at home about questions they have. And Paul says, this is not the way you ought to operate. You ought to learn under your husband, not under another man. Okay? And so whatever they were doing, we aren't exactly sure of, and there's probably some speculation as to what it exactly was. But what we do know is that wives in the Corinthian church were demonstrating disrespect for the husbands in the operation of things. And so the application for us is just that, right? That uh, wives in the church need to hold the proper honor for their husbands in whatever fashion that ought to be. Paul refers to the, the, human, the created order in that um, the husband is responsible for the wife. And like we've talked about, like we talked about in the head covering uh, discussion of chapter 11, um, the husband is the head of the wife and Christ is the head of the husband. And we looked at the, the picture of Ephesians where the husband has laid down his life for his wife and the wife then submits to him out of love and respect for her husband and what he's accomplished and what he is doing uh, for her. And so uh, that is really the call, is that 
in the church service, the wife ought not do anything that would bring shame or disrespect upon her husband, but ought to honor him in any way possible. It is not saying that women have to be silent in the church as it's often interpreted, because we see from the context of Judaic history, as well as the New Testament directives, that females have stood up and been prophets, and potentially in some interpretations, deaconesses, uh, but that's a whole other debate. Um, and, and so we know that this is not talking about the women not speaking in church. All right, so Paul has told them that they need to be available and that there are certain circumstances under which they need to be quiet, uh, that the church might be built up and strengthened, that we ought to come together and encourage and strengthen each other. Paul uh, rails on them here in verse 36 to 38 as he concludes. He says this, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul concludes his instruction on uninterpreted tongues with his very strong language. And so our question is, why is he so adamant? And the reason he is so adamant about this is that the Corinthian misuse of tongues has revealed their selfish pride and disregard for corporate faith. They think of themselves as spiritual ones. That word in, uh, I think it's verse 37, um, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or, quote, spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I'm saying. If they think, if they think themselves to be spiritual ones, but Paul has plainly shown them their disregard for morality, for wisdom, for fidelity, for respect, for discernment, for reverence. Paul is at them with this because they are showing in, in this misuse of tongues their complete prideful experience in the church, that they're completely selfishly motivated in this. He says, Was it to you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones it has reached? If you think you're a prophet or a spiritual one, you should acknowledge the things that I'm writing to you as a command of the Lord. And he goes even harder in verse 38. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Uh, the implication being that if anyone doesn't recognize this, God does not recognize him as his child. It's very important that uh, we grasp these things, that we are called to be available in the church that the church might be built up and strengthened. We are called to be quiet out of respect for one another, that the church might be built up and strengthened. So we go with these things that, um, that we have been saved for a purpose, and that purpose is twofold. That purpose is to build up our fellow believers, and that purpose is to save those who are sinners. And the only, reason, the only way that that can happen in the context of the church is that our message be intelligible and done so in order. That as someone comes to experience, they can easily discern what is being proclaimed. And what is being proclaimed in this church is that Christ has died and Christ has risen. And our sins are forgiven when we place our faith and trust in Him. And that there is no other way to the Father except through the Son. We cannot do it on our works. 
We cannot do it in some self-actualization pursuit. We cannot do it in some religious practice. We cannot do it in some spiritual experience. The only way we are reconciled to God the Father is by being restored through Christ the Son. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this word you've given us. We thank you for the scriptures that they are so clear and concise and and true to our circumstances even today. And so God, we pray that we too would be available to you. God, that we would make ourselves available to you in whatever you call us to do or accomplish. God, we pray that we would be quiet when we need to be quiet. Lord, that we would invite revelation and him and instruction and these things to operate among us, that we would listen to one another. That we would not consider ourselves to have arrived in any way, but that we would proceed in humility, desiring to be taught in all things and in all ways that you desire us to be taught. God, we thank you for what you've done through Jesus. We pray that our lives would proclaim his truth and his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.